We're gonna, I'm going to read you a little bit from Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1, just to kind of set the stage for what we're going to do tonight. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. Genesis 1 tells us this, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then the the passage takes us through the other days of creation, and then tells us this, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And then in a a sort of parallel passage early in the New Testament, John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. I want to talk today about who God is, which is uh, the most generic possible topic for a sermon for a preacher in a Christian church. Uh, And so in some ways, it's the easiest and the most difficult uh, passage to a sermon to prepare for. If you're following along in the book, Simply Christian, that I told you we're going to kind of track loosely with through this series, most of what N.T. Wright does in his chapter on God is talk about where God is, which is deeply intertwined with who God is. And my intention tonight was to talk about both. We're not going to have time for that. So what I want to encourage you to do if you're reading the book is read that chapter uh, and kind of set it up next to what you hear tonight. And what he does with that, the way that he talks about where God is, will be a significant part of what we do in future weeks. So we'll cover that here as well. But I want to do something a little different tonight and talk about some specific things that we as Christians believe about God. Before we get into the specifics of that, I want to remind you, or if you weren't with us, tell you, and you can go back and listen online, that we began this series dealing with some questions that I think nudge us toward, that all people in one way or another ask, that nudge us toward uh, seeing and knowing God. And uh, ultimately, that God being revealed in Jesus, which will come soon in, in the sequence of what we're doing. But those questions, I think, nudge us toward a God who has answers for those questions, who has satisfying answers for those questions. Um, and what we're going to do in the weeks to come, instead of focusing on the questions, is start focusing on some of those answers. And we're going to give our attention to some specific things that we believe as Christians. And in this format, to try to do that in weekly 30-minute or so sermons, uh, I think the most sensible thing to do is to break it down into pieces, kind of like the book does, kind of like a lot of approaches to this do, is to, is to look at the different parts of what we believe and why those different parts matter. And that's what we're going to do. But I think it's important that we are careful as we break things down, as we look at specific parts, um, and our desire to have answers to those questions, and in that exercise of sort of looking at the pieces one at a time, one at a time, that we not miss the bigger picture, that we not miss the bigger story. Uh, several, of you, I've I've told you before, and you know from seeing me around town, that uh, I drive a car that is older than my oldest child, and uh, share that car with that child now, and. Um, 
one of the many things that have happened in the life of that car is, I don't remember, six or seven years ago, the back hatch, the Nissan, old model Nissan Pathfinder, and the back hatch quit closing because the little latch at the bottom of the hatch got stuck and wouldn't uh, open. And so when you try to close it, it just, just banged. And so I kind of drove it, did, 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 vibrating kind of sort of shut for a week or two, uh, and then tied it shut somehow, I don't remember how. Um, and just asked a mechanic, like, what would this cost? And it, I don't remember, it was something silly, like seven or $800. And it was all for the time, the labor, because I found the part online, that latch part online, for like $80. So I, I got this, um, which is a hilarious thing for someone like me to say. Uh, I am not mechanically inclined at all. I have a liberal arts degree for a reason, but I did it. I ordered the part, I took the the uh, back hatch of my, I had to take the whole hatch apart to get to the piece. And it was one of those things that I wisely started at about 7 p.m. So at midnight, um, I'm in the darkness and I've turned the car around to get it under the bright lights of the carport. Uh, I, how many things I've done in the darkness at midnight, built basketball goals in freezing Christmas Eve cold weather. Um, I'm not the wisest person when it comes to these kinds of outdoor projects, but, but I took this, I'm sorry if I'm not looking at you, these are brighter than usual tonight, I'm not sure what's going on, but um, I'm trying to look at you, but I'm also wearing contacts for the first time in five years, so the combination, I just can't see anything past about right here. Um, so I took the, took the door apart, slowly worked my way through it, and I successfully got it all back together, and the door would close. And it felt like this enormous victory in my life until I discovered that though that was true, uh, that door no longer locked or unlocked when you press the lock unlock button inside the car. So it, I thought, okay, well, it's just off the lock unlock circuit. I can live with that. Um, and then I discovered if you put your key in the hatch and turn it, which you have to do to lock or unlock it since it's not on the button circuit, it locks and unlocks the whole car. <clears throat> so magically, somehow, I shut this off one way and activated it the other way. Um, I have no idea. It still, to this day, works that way. It also means that if you want to uh, unlock the back hatch and the doors, the side doors are locked, you need to go unlock the side door first, or else when you unlock the back hatch, the alarm which never goes off any other time in the history of me owning the car, goes off uh, when you open the back hatch. So, sort of success in this project. Um, this is better than the time when I was in college and the window in my car got sucked down. I decided to talk, take the door apart and couldn't get it back together and just had to like take it in pieces to someone to put it back together. This is my story of dealing with things like this. I tell you all that just to say, when we start taking things apart, when we start taking our faith apart and looking at specific pieces of it, we're in danger if we're not careful of missing the bigger picture. We're in danger of forgetting how all this fits back together or, or not knowing how to fit it all back together. And some of us know we have kind of a broken part or two in our faith. And maybe you've gone about, this has happened to me before, where you start breaking it all down and you discover something else is broken. Or maybe you get that thing fixed and then you realize man, I wish I hadn't thought about all this because now I'm not sure about this part. And the important thing is that we understand the big picture of where we're headed. We understand that all of this is going to fit together 
in a particular way. And so especially when I start talking to you about who is God and what is God like, I want to put before us, though we're not talking about Jesus just yet, specifically, I want to put before us the big picture, the big answer to this question, who is God? And it's found in Hebrews chapter 1, which tells us this, long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. The answer, I could stop now, and that would be a sufficient answer. The answer to the question of who is God and what is God like is Jesus. Always the answer is Jesus. There are no exceptions. There is no way that you can talk about God and say, I know Jesus is like this, but, but, but God is a little... Di- no, the scriptures say he's the exact imprint of God. And that all things came into being. That God brought all things into being through Jesus. And this is important. And I think it's important for us to look at what I'm going to talk about tonight through that lens. Because some of us have a really hard time in our walk with Jesus. Though we kind of believe the story that Jesus gave his life for us. That he loves us. That he forgives us. We have a very hard time in our walk with Jesus because we're constantly seeing him as a contrast to this God who is looking over our shoulder and waiting to get us for some reason. And so I want to tell you who God is, and I want you to remember that the answer to that and always is Jesus, okay? Let's zoom in a little bit um, and... Start with what I, like I said, I think is the most foundational part of our beliefs, and that is what we believe about God. And as I said, I want to talk primarily tonight about who is God, and uh, there's also this question of where is God that's, that's related that we won't have time to get to. Um, there are, to even answer this question, to even start talking about who is God, For a lot of us, it it sort of triggers the question of how can we even know? How is it possible uh, to know anything about God or to actually know God? And the answer to that is, is always revelation. God has to reveal himself in some way to us for us to know anything about him. Romans 1 tells us that what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. So whatever we know about God is because God has revealed it to us. Um, But there is this question of what does God reveal of himself and and how does he reveal it? Uh, This is not a comprehensive answer. My list of what God is like will not be comprehensive tonight. And this, this sort of short bit on what it means for God to reveal himself, what ways that God reveals himself is also not comprehensive. But I think it's helpful for us to think about the fact that God reveals himself in these ways. One way that he reveals himself is creation. This is what that passage in Romans 1 primarily points to. In verse 20 it says, Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. This is one way that we know about God, that he reveals himself, is through what he has made. Another way is through his presence and his activity in and among us, um, in history, via the life of Jesus is one way that we know 
things about God because Jesus actually came into the world and lived, and he was the exact imprint of God's being. Now, though Jesus is not bodily present with us, the scriptures tell us the Spirit is present. The Spirit of God is present and active in among us, and we know about God that way. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, but as the scriptures say, no eye has ever seen and no ear has ever heard, and it has never occurred to the human heart all the things God prepared for those who love him. And then he says this, God has shown us these profound and startling realities through his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep mysteries of God. Who can see into a man's heart and know his thoughts? Only the spirit that dwells within the man. In the same way, the thoughts of God are known only by his spirit. Another way that he reveals himself. Third way, and one that we will focus on tonight, is through Scripture. Paul writes to Timothy and tells him that all Scripture is breathed out by God. What we have in the Scriptures came from God. It is all revelation from God. And as we move through this series, we're going to lean heavily on Scripture. And I know that as we start charting out, hey, here's what Christians believe, and some of you are trying to piece that together for yourself and maybe struggling with different parts of it, uh, you may need more than the assumption that the Scripture is breathed out by a living God, that it is a reliable revelation of who God is. And I've done some work on that in the past from this space, and I will do some work on that toward the end of this series. We will talk about what we believe about the Bible. We're approaching it a little bit differently. But if you struggle with that, and if struggling with that is going to make this series hard for you, just talk to me. You're not... Trust me, I've struggled with it. All of us probably have struggled with it in some way. I can point you to some good resources. I'm happy to have a conversation about it. Or you can just operate in faith for a little bit. You can assume with us that the Bible is a reliable revelation of who God is as we talk through this, because that's a big part of how we will talk about who God is. All right? So I want to say 10 things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any one of them. Don't worry. And if we run out of time, I'll save some for next week. But I want to say 10 things about who God is. Again, this is not comprehensive. There's one of my favorite old hymns, which I didn't actually grow up singing. I only heard after I became an adult. It's called The Love of God, and it has this gorgeous third verse, um, and I'm not going to try to quote it because I would misquote it, but it talk, the imagery is if we filled the oceans with ink and then tried to write from that ink about the vastness of the love of God, we would run out of ink. And that's certainly true Moving out from just talking about the love of God, it's certainly true in talking about who God is and what God is like. No chance that we can cover all of that, but I want to talk about some specific things that I think become foundational as we move through this bigger conversation of what we believe and maybe represent just one drop of ink um, in that ocean of ink about who God is, okay? So who is God? The first thing I want to say tonight about God is that God is real, that God always has been and always will be real. We've already seen two passages of Scripture that deal with that. Genesis 1, when we get the story of the creation of the earth, there is an assumption that God exists prior to anything, that before anything was made, anything that we know came into being, anything physical that we know came into being, God existed and he created it. And then John 1 echoes that sentiment and says, in the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to Jesus as the Word of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. From the start, God was. I'm not going to get too far into the nuances of this. I had a, 
a fun conversation with my two daughters and a friend of theirs that we uh, carpool with to dance a couple of weeks ago where, where you get in that place where you break your brain, you know, you think about, well, God was there in the beginning, but if there was a beginning, there had to be something before the beginning, right? I'm, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to do that exercise, but it's part of what's profound and mysterious about God. He's always been. He pre-exists. He predates anything that our brains can get themselves around. Revelation echoes this idea that God has always been when Jesus, in the end, says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the very beginning and the very end, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming, the all-powerful. The psalmist says, before the mountains were born, before you fashioned the earth and filled it with life, from ages past to distant futures, you are truly God. And then Paul writes this in Ephesians, God chose us to be in a relationship with him even before he laid out plans for the world. God is real, and he's always been real, and he always will be real, and our lives exist because before we ever existed, he thought of us, and he created us, and he planned for us to exist in relationship with him. That's the second thing I want to say about God, is that God is our source and our creator. Genesis 1, further down, says, So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Acts carries this Genesis account, this notion that we get in Genesis that God is the creator, that he is the originator, that he is the source, that he set things up the way that he intends them to work is, is not just an Old Testament notion. It's echoed throughout the New Testament. And one of those places in, is in Acts. And I believe this is when Paul is making his case for the gospel in Athens, I think. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. He created us. He is our source. Everything that lives and breathes has its being because of God. Okay? Third thing, God is holy, perfect. We can spend a lot of time sort of breaking down what this means, what holy means, it can be a hard concept for us to get our, our minds around. Psalm 99 says it this way, Lift up the eternal, our God, in your hearts, and celebrate his goodness at his holy mountain. For the eternal, our God, is holy, perfect, and exalted in his power. This just means that he's without flaw, and everything beautiful and right and good is found in him. He is all of those things, and all of those things that exist come from him. He's pure in his essence. There's not another like him, which is why we worship. It's why we respond and look and say, we have to acknowledge that he's the only one, acknowledge his holiness, his worth, acknowledge him as the source of everything good and right, the source of life. And, and we should take that seriously and we should respond seriously in worship because he's unlike any other. First Samuel 2, it says, there is no Holy one like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. 
He is the only one. Next, God is everywhere. The theological word for this is omnipresent. He can't be confined. If you just think about this logically and you accept that premise that he made everything, he can't be confined by space. He made space. He can't be pushed out of space because he created everything. It's all his space. Jeremiah, the prophet, God speaks through him and says, am I only a God who is close by and not a God of the farthest reaches? Am I a God anyone can hide from? Do I not see what happens in secret? Am I not everywhere filling heaven and earth? The scriptures, one of the most profound truths in the scriptures is that even when we try to make this not true, even when we run from God and reject him or attempt to live apart from him, he's there. Psalmist wrote, can I go anywhere apart from your spirit? Is there anywhere I can go to escape your watchful presence? If I go up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the realm of the dead, you're there. There's a concept here in the psalmist's writing that's very similar to, to the way that we tend to conceive of hell. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I ride on the wings of morning, if I make my home in the most isolated part of the ocean, even then you will be there to guide me. Your right hand will embrace me, for you are always there. Colossians 1 involves Jesus in this idea that God is everywhere. It notes that with, with his hand, he actively holds everything together. Jesus is present in holding everything together. And this, I think, is a reassurance in many ways. Um, let me just mention two. One is really personal. Even when you run, and even when you reject God in big ways or small ways, when you decide to return, there's no mountain to climb. There is no gulf between you and God because you have somehow removed yourself and taken yourself to a place that he can't get to. There's no needle to find in a haystack. He is always there. So when you run, and you can run, and you can turn your back, when you repent, you don't have to climb a ladder to find him. He's there waiting for you. The second part of this that I think is good news is that although the world around us may appear to be becoming this sort of dark, godless place, we're never forsaken. Whatever happens in the world around us, we, because God is with us and in us, we're never forsaken. We're never without God's presence, no matter what happens around us. There's a lot of fear if we let things get out of hand in our world, that we're all doomed. And it's just, it's just not true. Things may get bad circumstantially, and that will be a function of whether we live within or without God's plan, God's design. But God is always present, and he's always at work, even as many people around us reject him and reject his ways. And that doesn't, the point of that is not to make us indifferent to what's going on around us. In fact, it ought to motivate us to join him because he is there at work. He is there to bring his kingdom into this space. We have a mission to join him as he rescues and we, as, as he redeems the world. But all that's happening because he loves the world and he's working toward the day when his glory will be evident to all. And so we can be confident, no matter what our circumstances, that God is not lost, and he is present, and he is at work always, okay? 
Next thing. God is all-powerful. Omnipotent is the big theological word here. In Genesis 18.4, God is speaking to Sarah, uh, who he has told in her old age, though she's never had a child, that she's going to have a child. And what does she do in response? She laughs. And God says, is anything too difficult for the eternal one to accomplish? Do you really think I can't do this? And way down the line later, Jeremiah actually answers and says, eternal Lord, with your outstretched arm and your enormous power, you created the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too difficult for you. Ephesians speaks to this as well. Paul writes, now to the God who can do so many awe-inspiring things, immeasurable things, things greater than we could ever ask or imagine through the power at work in us, to him be all glory in the church and in Jesus the anointed from this generation to the next forever and ever. Amen. We shouldn't box God in or imagine that there's something that he can't do. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, we can't save ourselves, and that is among the most impossible things, is that we could somehow heal the breach between us and God. We can't do that ourselves, but with God, all things are possible. Next thing, God is good. James writes about it this way. Every good gift bestowed, every perfect gift received, comes to us from above, courtesy of the Father of lights. He's consistent. He won't change his mind or play tricks in the shadows. We have a special role in his plan. And here you go. He calls us to life by his message of truth so that we will show the rest of his creatures his goodness and love. Jesus uses a really familiar and tangible example in saying, how many of you, though you know you're not that good, though you know you're capable of great evil, how many of you, if your children ask you for something good, are going to hand them a snake? And then he says, now imagine God who actually is good and what, how he will respond when you ask him for good gifts. God is good, and his goodness is evident in the way that he responds to us. Related, but not exactly the same, God is love. 1 John 4, it says, my loved, my loved ones, let us devote ourselves to loving one another. Love comes straight from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and truly knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And that love is expressed most obviously and in a very familiar passage to us, this way, for God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Here's the point. God didn't send his son into the world to judge it. Instead, he is here to rescue a world headed towards certain destruction. Despite our failings, despite our many rejections, despite where we go in our flesh, our natural inclination to go our own way. God's essence is love, and he shows that love toward us in the ultimate way. Okay? Three more. And these next two are direct responses to some of the questions that we asked the last couple of weeks. God is just. Isaiah says, Meanwhile, the Eternal One yearns to give you grace and boundless compassion. That's why he waits. 
And, and the context here is he waits even when we haven't yet repented, even when we haven't turned to him. He waits because he yearns to give you grace and boundless compassion. For the eternal is a God of justice. Those inclined toward him, waiting for his help, will find happiness. This is the challenge for a lot of us with justice, is that waiting, waiting. When will we see justice? And the prophet promises those who look toward God for that justice and wait for him will find happiness. And even those who don't seem to be experiencing justice in our world now, the psalmist says they'll get justice from God. And so this psalm starts by saying, blessed are those whose help comes from the God who works justice for those who are pressed down by the world, providing food for those who are hungry. The eternal frees those who are imprisoned. He makes the blind see. He lifts up those whose backs are bent in labor. He cherishes those who do what is right. The eternal looks after those who journey in a land not their own. He takes care of the orphan and the widow, but he frustrates the wicked along their way. Justice is coming because justice is bound up in a God who sees. However fed up or weary or angry we get at the injustices in our world, God sees, he knows, and he is just, and he will bring justice into the world. Next, God is beauty. Isaiah 33 expresses it this way. Ah, you will see for yourself the beauty of the one who rules over all. Your eyes will take in a land that stretches far beyond the horizon. We asked questions last week about what do we do with the existence, the sort of popping up of beauty in a world that still has a lot of ugliness, still has a lot of mundane and has outright ugliness in it. And the promise from the prophet is that in God you will see beauty in its fullness. And in fact, even now, he is working beauty into the world in the place of brokenness and ugliness. Isaiah 61 says this, as for those who grieve over Zion, God has sent me to give them a beautiful crown in exchange for ashes, to anoint them with gladness instead of sorrow, to wrap them in victory, joy, and praise instead of depression and sadness. People will call them magnificent, like great towering trees standing for what is right. They stand to the glory of the eternal who planted them. Last one, if you're somebody who likes bullet points and Bible verses, this is your week. Here's the last one, and very, very important one, and key to what we're doing in this exercise. God can be known. And this has always been true. It's uniquely and especially true now that Jesus has changed everything. This has always been a God who can be known. Prophet Jeremiah wrote this. This is the kind of new covenant I will make with the people of Israel when those days are over. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will people have to teach each other or encourage their family members and say, you must know the eternal for all of them will know me intimately themselves from the least to the greatest of society. I will be merciful when they fail and forgive their wrongs. I will never call to mind or mention their sins again. 
Paul expresses it this way. God chose us to be in a relationship with him even before he laid out plans for this world. Here's the rest of that passage that that we read that first part earlier. He wanted us to live holy lives characterized by love, free from sin and blameless before him. He destined us to be adopted as his children through the covenant Jesus the anointed inaugurated in his sacrificial life. This was his pleasure and his will for us. This God who is all-powerful, who knows everything, who is everywhere, who created everything, who is our source, who is justice, who is beauty, who is love, who is goodness, is not far away. He doesn't stand removed from us. He is a God who can be known and not only can be known, but remarkably wants to be known. He wants that kind of relational experience with us. So those are 10 things that I think are helpful for us to know about God as we move forward. We'll continue unfolding the story and continue talking about what is the bigger picture, what happens with this kind of God and his interaction and his relationship with us as people as we move forward in the weeks to come. We're going to take communion. I'm going to pray for us uh, as we start that. The band can come on back up, and if you're serving communion tonight, you can come up as well. I want to read over us as we begin communion and as we move forward in this series, I want to read over this prayer from Colossians 1, from the message. Um, This is my heart for us as a people, and I think it's the Lord's heart for us, and it's why we're doing this. It's why we're taking the time to talk through in these very specific ways, what is it that we believe? What are the foundations of the faith that was handed down once for all of us? What makes us distinct? What shapes us and molds us as a people? And this is the prayer I want to pray over us moving into that and as we come and remember Jesus in communion tonight. Paul writes this, Be assured from the first day we heard of you, we haven't stopped praying for you, asking God to give you wise minds and spirits attuned to his will, and so acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. We pray that you'll live well for the master, making him proud of you as you work hard in his orchard. As you learn more and more how God works, you will learn how to do your work. We pray that you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. Not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength God gives. It is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. Thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. Come and remember the gift and the goodness of Jesus. Thank you.